0: Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. There is so much discussion these days about the role of pesticides in our lives. Rachel Carson even was one of the first people who wrote about it back in the 1950s, and she was one who even argued that properly used, there may be a role for it, but improper or overuse, and they could cause devastating problems. Jeannie Economos is with the Florida Farm Workers Association, and she's kindly spending time with us today to talk about the serious health consequences seen in people who are very commonly exposed to pesticides. Thank you so much for it. Thank you for inviting me. We've all heard about situations like Lake Apopka, that's in Florida, and this is not exclusive to just Florida, by the way, and pesticide concerns. Could you give us a little history of what happened, why it was such a concern, and how, for many people, this actually may have been an eye-opener? Could we start there?
1: Sure. Lake Apopka is the fourth largest lake in the state of Florida. It's also the most contaminated lake in Florida. And it's contaminated for many reasons, but largely it's related to agricultural interests on the north shore of the lake. The north shore of Lake Apopka in the 1940s was drained to expose about 20,000 acres of muck, soil, and land that was then put into agricultural production to help feed soldiers during World War II. So from the 1940s until 1998, these 20,000 acres were producing vegetable crops and herbs, but also during that time, a lot of pesticides and fertilizers were used on that land. And as the soil became depleted over the years, over the 50 or so years that it was in agricultural production, more and more pesticides had to be used because the soils were depleted. This is Florida, so we have lots of different kinds of pests, everything from molds and funguses to insects, etc. so a lot of these chemicals were on the land. What the process was on Lake Apopka during the production years was that the water from the lake was pumped onto the farmland for like nine months out of the year to irrigate the crops. And then in the summertime, when there was no production, that water was pumped onto the land to kill weeds and to stop soil oxidation. So for 50 years, you had a flow of water from Lake Apopka onto the farmlands, from the farmlands back into the lake. So as a result, there were a lot of pesticides and fertilizers that went from the farmland into the lake. Whereas Lake Apopka was a premier bass fishing lake in the 1960s and 50s, by the 1980s, it was an eyesore. Unfortunately, local leaders around the area were only focusing on the algae blooms in the lake related to phosphorus runoff from the fertilizers. So, a long story, but a lot of efforts to address were uh, tried to address the phosphorus runoff from the farmlands and to address the algae blooms. Nobody was really paying attention the pesticides that were running off into the lake and causing harmful effects to wildlife. And later, our organization feels to the people also. So in the 1980s, Dr. Lou Gillette, who was a researcher from the University of Florida, did some of the seminal work on alligators on Lake Apopka. And he found very strange things happening with the alligators, reproductive problems, birth defects, Altered hormone in female and male alligators, and he was one of the foremost people working with other researchers around the country that looked at endocrine disrupting chemicals in the environment. He concluded that. It was pesticides that was causing the problems with the alligators on Lake
0: Apatka. From your perspective, as best as you can state, did the problem evolve because there wasn't the science to show that the pesticides were an issue, or was it an indifference?
1: I think it's a combination of lack of science at the time. So there were very few scientific studies. There's been an increasing number over the past 10 years, I would say. I think it's also our nation's blindness or the power of the agricultural industry and the pesticide companies, basically. And if there were to be an acknowledgement of the problems with pesticides on the farmland, it would open up a whole can of worms for wildlife problems and human health problems Around the country and I don't think our political leaders wanted to go there. I think the agricultural lobby and the pesticide lobby also had an influence in that.
0: Obviously Florida is not the only place in the world where pesticides are used and there are biological problems downstream. How common a problem is this throughout the world?
1: It's a major problem and again I think Up until about 10 or 15 years ago, science has not been paying significant attention to it. In the past 10 or 15 years, there's an increasing body of scientific literature looking at particular pesticides and wildlife impacts. And even now, a little bit more is being done on acute and long-term effects on humans. Of course there was the Bhopal disaster in India, but there have been multiple other problems with pesticides worldwide. And again, the influence of the pesticide corporations and agriculture have been so powerful that they have kept these studies from from happening or a lot of times the studies are done by the pesticide companies so there's no independent review of the studies um, or independent
0: science being done. It's problematic because it's like with malaria, we need pesticides. There are other times where pesticides help and I want to look at the subsequent downstream sequelae of exposure to the pesticides with you, but there's got to be a balance somewhere. We have to eat.
1: There again, that's a major misconception that I think the agricultural industry and the pesticide companies have promoted. They keep telling us that we can't produce enough food in the world without pesticides and fertilizers, and now they're saying that we have to have GMO crops in order to have enough food for the world. But that's a real misconception, and it's a distortion. There's a whole body of study now called agroecology, and... Agroecology is showing, organic agriculture, sustainable agriculture movements are showing that fields and farmland might have initial, maybe four to five years, initial higher yields of crops by using intensive chemical fertilizers and pesticides. But ultimately, in the long run, the chemical pesticides and fertilizers deplete the soil and actually, over time, cause reduction in yields. There's a pesticide called methyl bromide. It was supposed to be phased out in the late 1990s, and then it was supposed to be phased out in 2001. It's 2015, and it's still being used in the United States. It's called a soil sterilizer. It basically kills everything in the soil. It sterilizes the soil. So it kills beneficial bacteria and beneficial organisms also. When we're killing the beneficial organisms, we are not promoting good agriculture, and we're not restoring our soils. We need a whole new concept of agriculture. We need to relook at the way we do agriculture in this country. And I say in this country, because this country is pushing its policies on other countries around the world. And that's really critical because the six big pesticide corporations, and I can name them, Bayer, BASF, Dow, DuPont, Syngenta, and Monsanto, are the six big chemical corporations. They're not all U.S. based, but they are pushing these policies on other countries around the world, and we are losing subsistence agriculture.
0: Early on in the medical training, there is the notion of when and how to use antibiotics. And we do have good bacteria in the gut and we have bad bacteria in the gut, and we need to keep the good bacteria, but sometimes when people are sick, they go through a period of antibiotic use. We kill all the bacteria, so it takes a while for it to refertilize, shall we say, and I think the concept is, is very similar. All this is incredibly interesting, and I know it's very important in a, in a public health manner, but let's go back just to what effect Are the current use of pesticides having, well, you talked about the alligators. Is it that they're losing their ability to reproduce? Is that being seen in human beings as well?
1: That's a a very complicated question. Yes, I know. Um, So Dr. Lou Gillette published his studies in the 1980s, and he was laughed at. But now we know that he was one of the foremost scientists looking at endocrine disruption in wildlife. Tell
0: us what an endocrine disruptor is or a hormone disruptor is.
1: Yes, absolutely. Many of the chemicals in our environment, and I include other chemicals besides pesticides, although, of course, I'm mainly focused on pesticides myself. When they get into the body, they fool the body because they act like hormones. So we have receptor cells in our body that hormones attach to and then those receptor cells recognize it as a hormone and they do certain things in the body. Well, some pesticides and other chemicals basically fool these receptor cells into thinking they're hormones and they attach to these receptor cells and then they cause hormone disruption or endocrine system disruption. So they are affecting our endocrine systems. I think just about every week, there's more scientific studies looking at this. In fact, the EPA started back in the 1996 or 7, and then there was political problems, and so it ended. But the EPA actually has an endocrine disruption task force to look at these class of chemicals that are doing this. But basically, one example of that is early puberty in young girls and women. There are some indications of... There's been actually quite a few studies that have looked at decline in fertility, in males is affecting the semen and sperm function and sperm formation. So there are increasing numbers of studies that are looking at this and it's very problematic and I think we all need to be very concerned about this and again I think it really needs to inform how we go forward both with agriculture and with the use of chemicals. I think it was Environmental Defense or Environmental Working Group, one of those groups did a study of cord blood of newborn babies. This was like a couple of years ago. So this is recent and cord blood of newborn babies had over 240 chemicals in it. That's pretty telling.
0: So these children are exposed to these unnatural chemicals during gestation. Do we have data about developmental problems, birth defects, learning disabilities?
1: Again, I work with farm workers, so I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a very bad pesticide called chlorpyrifos, and we've been trying to get it banned for a long time. There have been three areas of study on this pesticide. It used to be called, it, its trade name was Dursban. Quite a few years ago, it was banned for residential use because studies in New York showed that it had detrimental effects on children, on cognitive abilities of learning disabilities, ADHD, in children. That pesticide is still allowed for use in agriculture. Well, there's kids in agriculture. There's children that work in the fields, even though they, there are some states that have laws that they're not supposed to. They do anyway. Parents bring home pesticides on their clothes and they get in their truck or their car after work and they have their work clothes on. They're bringing home residue. There have been studies looking at residue in the homes of farm workers, swab tests, and they found pesticides on countertops, on carpet, in the home, on toys. So kids are getting secondary exposure to this pesticide that's been banned for residential use.
0: Is there a difference between pesticide poisoning and pesticide exposure? A lot of people go to the garden shops and they get weed killers and the like, and they're spraying their backyards. Are we talking about a substantive difference in the level or the type between poisoning and exposure? Is there much knowledge about that yet?
1: In some way we're all kind of exposed to pesticides. Anybody that eats conventionally grown food is likely exposed to pesticides. And if you do use pesticides in your home or on your yard, which I highly discourage, then you're exposed to pesticides. And of course farm workers are doubly or triply or quadruply exposed to pesticides because they're around it every day. So exposure is one thing. Poisoning usually means that you're exhibiting symptoms of exposure. And that can be related to Many things. It could be related to the dose, to the type of pesticide. It could be related to your own predisposition toward your own genetics or predisposition, whether you have a weakened immune system, you might be more susceptible to it. But poisoning generally means exhibiting symptoms. But I want to, I hesitate to even focus on poisoning because some people may exhibit acute symptoms, but farm workers and other people might have chronic. I'm more concerned actually right now about chronic effects of pesticide exposure, which is, it's much more difficult to prove. It's much more complicated because you're looking at a long period of time. But there have been scientific studies, for example, that link Parkinson's disease to pesticide exposure. That's a long-term chronic effect. There's been a study, that NIH did, that looked at DDT, exposure to DDT, and autoimmune disease. I work with a population of African-American farm workers that have a series of chronic illnesses, one of which is a high prevalence of lupus, which is an autoimmune disease. And the African-American farm workers were exposed to DDT while it was still legal to use. And before there were any EPA worker protection standards to protect them or to educate them about pesticide exposure in the field.
0: It's a natural segue here. Healthcare providers probably do not adequately understand these background issues and I'm particularly struck by the need for more of an occupational or exposure history when people present with an illness. You have a program to teach healthcare providers to think this way. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Sure. We have been very frustrated with trying to identify and report pesticide-related illness in farm workers. The Farm Worker Association of Florida worked with the Farm Worker Health and Safety Institute and developed a training for healthcare care providers. It's about an hour and a half long training, and we've done it in clinics and health departments around the state of Florida. We did it because in four years of medical school, most doctors and even People in nursing schools get very little to know occupational or environmental health education and training, which is mind-boggling to me. When we have so many environmental and occupational health issues, they're not getting trained. What we found in farmworker clinics is that farmworkers will go to the clinic and they'll say, you know, I have a headache, I've been vomiting, I have dizziness, and they'll say, oh well, were you were you drinking over the weekend, or what did you eat last night, or maybe you have the flu, and that's as far as it goes they don't ask them, well, where do you work? What were you exposed to? Did they spray yesterday? So one of the things that we have been encouraging is for health providers, and again, I speak specifically for farm workers, but I think it goes across the board for other industries as well. We feel like it's increasingly important for health providers to take occupational health histories to begin to look at what kinds of exposures people may be having in their workplace. And of course, with farm workers, our concern is pesticides. Because if they're not looking at that, then they are missing the acute symptoms. And if you miss the acute symptoms, then those acute symptoms are going to lead to long-term chronic
0: health effects. Where can someone go, the average person, where can that person go to get reasonable, balanced, reliable information about this entire issue?
1: There are two very good organizations. Beyond Pesticides is a national organization and they have a very long history. I think they're 35 years old. They have a very excellent website. They have experts that have been working with them, scientists on their board of directors, Google Beyond Pesticides, and you can find out a lot of information there. And then Pesticide Action Network, North America. Actually, Pesticide Action Network is an international organization, but you can go to their website also and they have places on their website where you can look up various pesticides and find out their short-term and long-term effects. There's also the Endocrine Disruption Exchange also has a website called Critical Windows of Development. It takes a long time to load because it's very extensive and they have done various chemicals, one of which is chlorpyrifos. They have taken the nine month length of the development of the fetus and looked at health studies and shown points along development of the fetus at which point, for example, at what point the brain is developing and at what point the internal organs are developing and scientific studies that link exposures at that point to problems with the development. It's a very excellent tool. And you can Google critical windows of development in the endocrine disruption exchange and find that
0: information. This is absolutely fascinating and absolutely necessary information, and I thank you so much for it. Jeannie Economist works with the Farmworker Association of Florida. Thank you for your time. This has been a fabulous overview and very important for countless, for all of us, for all of us, including the, the plants and animals, just not us. The earth is our home.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.